And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word, wrong one, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your love. Lord, we thank you for your son, God. We just pray that tonight as we, we dive deep into your word, Lord, that we would see Jesus more clearly, Lord, that we would know him more, that we would love him more, God. We just pray that you would reveal yourself by your spirit, Lord, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth, God. We just thank you so much for who you are. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Philadelphia. So where was Philadelphia? It's not the city in Pennsylvania that has the most hateable sports franchises in all the major sports. Tony. Philadelphia was about 36 miles southeast of Sardis. It was actually on the road, like we spoke about, that connected Sardis to Susa when they were the two capitals of the Persian Empire. Philadelphia was by far the smallest church in the smallest town of the seven that are addressed in the book of Revelation. It wasn't a major city, it was really a small town. In modern day ratios, Sardis was like New York City, Philadelphia was kind of like Nutley. Now their economy was based almost solely on grapes that were used to make wine. And the wine produced here was very well known. But shortly before this letter was written, this letter was written about 95 AD, in 92 AD, Emperor Domitian commanded that half of all the vineyards in Asia Minor had to be cut down and replaced with cornfields because of an empire-wide corn shortage. So the economy of Philadelphia took a huge hit. And the economy would have been very unstable at the time that this address was written. We have a letter from the Bishop of Antioch, the early church father Ignatius, from the early second century. He actually visited the church in Philadelphia. It still existed then. And in his letter, he encouraged the Philadelphia church to stop listening to, as he says, the Jews who are not Jews, which indicates that some of the trials that were going on in Philadelphia that Christ addressed here in this address, they were still being faced. But it also might suggest that perhaps this letter, the book of Revelation, may have already been widely circulating within 20 years of its writing. And what we have in this address is one of two, the other being the address to Smyrna, one of two addresses that do not point to any specific faults of the church. So rather than repentance and perseverance, the call to this church is just perseverance, to continue what she was already doing in the face of trial. So let's take a look at what the church was doing. And we begin, as usual, with Christ's salutation to the church. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And as in all the address, he addressed it to the angel of the church, which we know He's addressing the Christians of the church. And then Christ does what he's done in each of the first five addresses we've looked at. He uses this description of himself to point to the fact that he is God, to affirm that these are the very words of God, 
and then he ties it in with John's description of himself in chapter 1. This time, however, there's not a verbatim tie-in with John's description, but this does bring to mind John's description of Jesus in Revelation 1.5, where we read, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. So here, where Christ calls himself the true one, says it to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, right, the words of the holy one, the true one. Literally, it says, the words of the holy, the true. And this may be a development of the faithful witness idea. And we'll see this description of Christ when we read of his return later in the book. In Revelation 19, John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So the faithful and the true we see in the book of Revelation are tied together in the person of Jesus. And as we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus was the first martyr. He was the first to die for the truth. The first to die to bear witness to himself. So he is faithful and true, as in he bore witness to the truth unto death, but he is also the very truth itself. And we also have another reference to his deity, because as the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Christ is true God, just like the Father is true God here in this. This is true God from true God, as the Nicene Creed also states. And as the ruler of the kings on earth that we saw in chapter 1, we see here in chapter 2, Christ holds the key of David. Christ is the promised king, who all of the Old Testament kings, the office of king, and particularly in King David, these were pointers to Christ. And the key of David is a reference to the authority that Christ has. We've seen already how keys point to authority. In Revelation 1.18, we saw Christ say, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And if you remember, because Christ defeated death, and because he is who he is, he holds the keys. He has authority over death and Hades. It is Christ and his deity that has authority over who lives and who dies. But the point is that he has here the key of David. It means that Christ has all authority. His authority... Because he is the sovereign king. He's referring to his complete authority over everything. When he says, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. And then he says, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And there's another reference to his deity here and his sovereignty. But we'll see in chapter 6 when the Lamb, who is Christ, opens the fifth of seven seals, we read this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Again, Christ is the holy one and the true one. And we see here, they refer to him as the sovereign Lord as the holy and true. And note the parallel here between the martyrs and the witness they had borne and the fact that Christ is the true one, the holy and true. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We also have a reference here to Isaiah 22, where we read the prophet Isaiah is sent by God to Shebna, who assumes authority for himself that neither God gave him nor King Hezekiah gave him. And so God tells Isaiah to tell him he's going to remove him through death and give his office to another, namely Eliakim. And this is what God says in Isaiah 22. He says, I will place on his shoulder, meaning Eliakim, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. 
So this idea of having the key of the house of David and that what he opens cannot be shut and what he shuts cannot be opened, this is a reference to authority, but specifically, it is a reference to God-given authority, God-ordained authority, and God's all-encompassing power, which is the only authority and power there really is. And in applying this description to himself here, the holy and true, who is the sovereign Lord, Christ is saying that all the authority there is, is his, and all the power there is, is his. And this is very relevant for the church that he's writing to here, for the Christians in Philadelphia. And we'll see, because they were small. And from all worldly standards, they were powerless. But Christ is starting out by pointing them to him and his power, reminding them that it is his work to do in the church. It is his power that accomplishes the purpose of the church. So Christ starts by establishing himself as the sovereign, all-powerful God. And then he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We have the same words here. We see this word for know. It's an intimate knowledge of something. And he talks about knowing their works. And again, this is a general term for works, but it's also an all-inclusive term. Christ knew everything that this church was doing. And as we've seen throughout these addresses, the description of Christ by Christ about himself is relevant to the message that he's sending to each church, and here is no different. See, Christ knows intimately the work of these Christians, and he says he has set before them an open door which no one is able to shut. And as we just saw, his total power and sovereign authority, Jesus says that what he opens in his power, no one can shut. Because remember, he has all the authority and all the power. And the word open here that he opened for them, it is a perfect passive participle, which remember we saw this last week, it's a very particular construction in the Greek, and it points to something done to or for someone that has an ongoing benefit of what has been done. So Christ is saying he opened a door here for them, and it was going to stay open. And what is the open door? Well, the open door is a metaphor for an opportunity, specifically an opportunity to be witnesses to Christ. We see this idea of an open door throughout the New Testament as a reference to opportunities to bring the truth of the gospel to the world. Just a few examples. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Or in Colossians 4, he says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. This is the same door that Christ had opened for the Christians in Philadelphia. It was an opportunity to declare the gospel to the lost. And Jesus, remember the one with all the authority, He's the one with all the power. He tells this church, hey, I know that you have but little power. Like, like the town of Philadelphia itself, now that the economy was stunted because of that edict by Domitian. So this is a church that had little power to influence their culture because they were small. They were stuck in a small town that was dying for economic reasons. The town had no influence. And that is why Christ tells them, but it's okay. I have opened a door, he says. See, it's not about them and their power. It is about him and his power. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And that that, in the word that, and I know that you have but little power, it could also be translated as for or because. The word in Greek is used to show a reason. So this could just as easily be translated, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut because you have but little power. Again, pointing to the fact that he has all the power. God has all the power, and he opened the opportunity for them, just like he does for every church. And just like Philadelphia, we need, as a church, no power of our own, because Christ is with us in our commission. 
And this is why Christ ends the Great Commission with that promise, I am with you always. Because what the church does, we do in his power, which means that Christ ultimately is the one doing it. And notice here, even though his church had but little power, he says they had kept his word and had not denied his name. And this word kept, as we've seen before, it means to observe or obey. This church, they obeyed the words of Christ. And they also have not denied his name. And like we saw with the church in Pergamum, who held fast to the name of Christ, the idea of name of Christ is really talking about Christ himself. To deny the name of Christ would be to deny Christ. To hold fast to the name of Christ is to hold fast to Christ himself. These Christians have not ceased to hold fast to Christ. They have not ceased to hold fast to their testimony of him. So taking this all together, we can see that in, in order for God to work his power through Christians, through any church, all the church has to do is obey and hold fast to him. And it really is that simple. This church was doing that. They had no power to do anything else. All they could do was obey Christ's words and hold fast to him. And that's all they could do. That's all they did. And Christ had nothing to say against them. And regardless of their little power and their little influence, Christ promised he would open a door and he would work through them nonetheless. This is really a call to all churches. Listen, we are called to do nothing more than obey and hold fast to Christ. We are called to be witnesses to Christ through our obedience and reliance on him. As the angels, as we've seen, as the angels of a church, the messengers of the gospel, we are not called to save souls. We are not called as Christians or of a church to bring people to Christ, as we might say. No, we're just called to obey Christ. We are called to hold fast to him, to rely on him, because through that, he saves souls. He brings people to faith. The door is opened by him, and all we have to do is be obedient and walk through. Christ continues, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Remember back to the address in Smyrna that we saw about a month ago, which was the other church that Christ had nothing bad to say about them. Christ said this to them. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you were rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Same terminology of these Jews who were not in the synagogue of Satan. If you remember, we saw that these false Jews, the ones that lie, were opposed to Jesus, who is the true one and the true Israel. And remember, these people were not real Jews because Christ said true Jews would believe in him. And ultimately, he said, these people followed Satan because they did not follow the truth of where their religion led them, where it pointed them, which was to Christ. Well, the same thing goes for these false Jews in Philadelphia. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So these people, these Jews who were not Jews, they, they were deceived in their hearts by the lies of Satan. They were not true followers of the one true God. But Christ says he will make these people come and bow down at the feet of the Christians in Philadelphia. That these false Jews would come to know that Christ loves the Christians in Philadelphia. And what this means is that Christ, through the obedience, and the, the obedience and the faithfulness of the Christians in Philadelphia, he was going to save some of these false Jews of the synagogue of Satan. I'll explain. The open door Christ is providing the Philadelphians is the opportunity to preach the gospel. In particular, it is to preach the gospel to these unsaved Jews, to share the gospel with them. And remember, it's possible, probably even likely, these Jews were persecuting these Christians. 
Remember we saw this back when we looked at the church in Smyrna, how, how we have the history of the Jews and the Romans working together to persecute Christians in the first century. And we saw it was ultimately Satan that was behind this, right? They're of the synagogue of Satan. He was persecuting the church through both sides. And we saw, if you remember, that record of Polycarp's, Polycarp's martyrdom, where, where he was, he was uh, accused by both Jews and Romans of heresy. Well, as I said, we do have a letter from Ignatius to the church in Philadelphia, and I'm going to read you a bit of that. He says this to the church. He says, but if anyone propound Judaism unto you, hear him not. For it is better to hear Christianity from a man who is circumcised than Judaism from one uncircumcised. But if either the one or the other speak not concerning Jesus Christ, I look on them as tombstones and graves of the dead, wherein are inscribed only the names of men. Shun ye therefore the wicked arts and plottings of the prince of this world. So we see, he was saying kind of the same thing Christ is. These Christians were facing opposition. They were facing persecution from these Jews who were not Jews, or as Ignatius says, those who propounded Judaism. And he says they were doing that as part of the plotting of Satan. So they were being persecuted by these Jews. But here's the thing. The church is called to persevere in our mission as the angels of the church, as the messengers of the gospel. And we are to bring the good news to the world, even our enemies. And in fact, when you think about it from a spiritual point of view, bringing Christ to the unsaved is really nothing less than bringing the gospel to our enemies, isn't it? And when we read this, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of a synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. In the Greek here, that I have set, of verse 8, talking about the open door, and the I will make, talking about the Jews, it's actually the same Greek verb. And it means to cause something to be. Christ will cause the door of evangelism to be open for this church, and he will cause those who are not true Jews to be the object of the opportunity. Then, the I will make of the coming and bowing down is a different Greek word that means to cause to happen. So take it all together. I know we're splitting hairs here, but take it all together. We see when it comes to the spread of the gospel, God causes the opportunities to be. He causes the object of our evangelism to be, and ultimately, he causes them to do what they do. He causes how they respond to the gospel. What Christ is doing here is pointing to his sovereignty and salvation. Again, he's saying we can only do what we can do. All we can do is obey him. All we can do is hold fast to him because of what God has caused us to be, and he'll take care of the rest. So Christ is directing the Christians in Philadelphia to walk through the open door, to, to seize the opportunity that he brought about, even to those who are persecuting them, which is the situation that he brought about, and he will cause them to believe, the unbelieving Jews. Because that bow down before your feet, when he says, I will cause them to bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, it is a metaphor for salvation. It's an allusion to Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God, beside him. Isaiah is talking about the recognition of the truth of the gospel that we bring. This is salvation by Christ, who hears the Lord. He is Yahweh himself. He is the Lord of all the earth. Again, there's that total sovereignty, that total power, that total authority. And he saves even those that, from our temporal point of view, like he's saying to Israel here, are enemies of him and his people. And then Isaiah actually repeats this and clarifies it a little more when he says this a little later. 
The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. He's saying the same thing here. Notice the people are called the city of the Lord in Zion. They are where God dwells. That is the church he's talking about. And this is fitting for the church in Philadelphia because they were afflicted by these false Jews, but these people would, through their obedience, through their faithfulness to Christ, Christ would show himself to these Jews through them. And we see how Isaiah uses the metaphor of Jerusalem for Zion, uh, Jerusalem or Zion for the church, and we'll see the same thing at the end of the book of Revelation, where we read this, Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in my spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great, high, a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, the 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is a description of the church, the bride of Christ, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We are where God dwells on earth. We are where people have to come to see God. It is our witness. It is who we are as the bride of Christ. That is the testimony of Christ in the here and now. So it is our obedience and our faithfulness that shows the world who Christ is. And this is actually brought back full circle in the further description of the New Jerusalem, where we read, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night in there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And this is part of the same uh, Isaiah prophecy of salvation where he says, Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. The people may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. In other words, the church is the means of salvation for the whole nation. And this door that Christ is talking about, that he has opened the opportunity for us, it's a two-way door. Christ has opened the door that we may walk through and seize the opportunity to be witnesses to the world, but he's opened it that souls may be brought into the church to be saved through our witness. And this is what Christ is referring to here when he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of a synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Through our faithfulness and our obedience, even our enemies, the enemies of God, will come to see who God is. Christ continues. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Here again, we see that they have kept his word. They have obeyed him. But we see here specifically what they obeyed him in. They obeyed his call to patient endurance. And, and the Greek word there is the same word we've already seen so many times in, in the first few chapters of the book. Remember, this book, the primary point of the book, the primary goal of the book is that Christians would persevere, that we would endure as Christians in a world that is constantly trying to oppose us, that is constantly putting us on trial that through the temptations that the world throws at us. And it's here in particular where the Christians in Philadelphia were obedient. Regardless of the power they didn't have, they endured the persecution of the world and they took the opportunity that Christ gave them. And because of that, because they have kept Christ's word about that patient endurance, he makes them a promise that he will keep them, same word for keep here, from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. So what does that mean? Well, first let me tell you what it doesn't mean. 
I think it's worth following this rabbit a little bit because this is a, an infamous proof text for pre-tribulation rapturists. Because proponents of a pre-tribulation rapture will usually point to two Bible verses to try and prove their position. One is 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We talk about waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And the other big one is Revelation 3.10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So they say that here, Christ is telling the Christians in Philadelphia that because they were obedient, that they would take part in the rapture and avoid the great tribulation, which Christ calls here the hour of trial coming on the whole world. But I don't see how we can still see that as a promise to this church when this happened 1,900 years ago and he hasn't returned in their lifetime. But that's where proponents of his view say that each of these seven churches represent the church universal, not all churches of all time, but each church is a different time period since Christ's first coming. And that Philadelphia represents the church that will be alive at Christ's second coming and be raptured. And the two glaring problems with that is, first, these are usually the same people that will tell us, well, we need to take the book of Revelation literally, which is their reason for saying, no, the tribulation described in the rest of the book has to be a literal event. Then they impose this idea of these churches representing different church ages when it's not stated in the text. But second, these same people tend to tell you, today we are in the church age of Laodicea because we are in the lukewarm church age. And not only is that not what Christ is talking about with that lukewarm reference that we'll see next week, but then we'd already be past the church age of the rapture. And that's where proponents of this view will say, well, no, wait, the ages aren't really listed in order. Philadelphia is going to be the raptured church, the Laodicean church is some other time. But if they aren't in order and we're, we are in the Laodicea age, well, then we don't need to heed Christ's call to stay awake and look for his coming because then we know he's not coming for us. But the real reason that this can't be a reference to the rapture is because that makes the words keep you from means something they don't mean in Greek. The Greek instruction here for keep you from is the Greek verb tereo, which means to keep, and the preposition ek, which means from or out of. And as I said, this tereo is the same word for keep that Christ uses twice here and in other addresses to commend the church for keeping his word, where it means observing or obeying. And the word is translated variously as keep, observe, guard, reserve, establish, hold, or protect. It never means to take out of or remove from as remove from the earth. And like, you could accuse me of begging the question, because I said it never means that, and I'm using this as one of the places it doesn't mean it. I want to point out, this construction, this tereo ek, occurs only two times in the entire Bible. Here, and in John 17, 15, where Christ is praying his high priestly prayer, and he's praying for his disciples of all time. The night before his work on the cross, he prays a few things of his Father, and one of them is this, John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And here, the keep from is the same two words, used specifically in contrast to God taking Christians out of the world. But rather than that, rather than being taken out of the world, Christ prays that we would be kept from, tereo ek, the wiles, the tricks, the influence of a devil. This is similar to what the Apostle John writes when he says, I know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And the word here for protect is the same word, tereo. So the, the word points to God's protection or preservation through trials, never a removal from trial. Okay, that's all to say what it can't mean. You can all wake up again now. Let's talk about what it does mean. Again, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So let's first look at the word trial, the, tr the hour or time or period of trial he's talking about here. This word can be translated trial like it is here. It can be translated as testing, like in the parable of the sower, where we read, 
The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. Or Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It can be translated as trial like in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Or it can be translated as temptation. Like we've seen in 1 Corinthians 10.13, we've looked at this verse a bunch of times already. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In all, this Greek word appears in the New Testament 21 times. And the 20 times it is used outside of this verse, it is used only to talk about tests, trials, or temptations that are faced either by Christ or by Christians. In other words, it only talks about opposition to Christ or about Christian trial at the hands of the world, the flesh, or the devil because of that opposition to Christ. So this only ever talks about trial for those in the church. So when Christ says, before you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, the trials that dwell on the earth, it's talking about temptations and trials that believers are going to face. And then we get to the try, of the try those who dwell on the earth. It's the same word we saw translated as tested in Revelation 2.10. It's a different word now. But it's the same that was translated tested in Revelation 2.10 when we saw this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And we saw there that this was going to be a testing, a trial uh, orchestrated by Satan that would tempt believers to abandon the faith. But here... Christ says he will protect the church in Philadelphia as he does for all churches through such trials. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And that is why Christ starts the address by talking about his power, talking about his authority, and then he moves to their patient endurance. Because he who has all the power will be the only one who can sustain them through the trials that they would be facing as Christians. The trials that have not stopped since the first century and will not stop until Christ returns. Especially for those Christians who are obedient, walk through that open door to bring the gospel to the world, to the enemies of Christ. We are going to face trials because of that. But there's more. Because the, those who dwell on the earth in the book of Revelation is, is used only ever to refer to unbelievers. It's used six other times, such as this reference to the worship of the beast, where he says, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Deceives those who dwell on the earth, which may, believe, which may lead us to believe that when Christ says here, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep it from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth, that he's talking about trials that unbelievers will face. And it is. Because as we've seen in some of these other addresses, both we and unbelievers face the same temptations to sin. We are not exempt as Christians from the same temptations to sin from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, as Paul said, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Not common to Christians, common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is the promise to Christians. So as we see, those of faith will be kept from the temptation, as in protected through the temptation by God. In other words, we face the same temptations to sin as the world, as the unsaved. And these temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil are universal to all men. But because we live in God's power, we can be kept from the sin. 
We can be preserved by Christ in the face of temptation. We can be preserved by Christ from the trials at the hands of the evil one, that on the eve of his death, Christ prayed to the Father he would keep us from by protecting us through the trials. And what we saw way back in the beginning of this uh, Revelation study, this is what was predicted in the prophecy of Daniel. When he says, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And that deliverance is the promise Christ is making here. When he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And then he gives them a promise beyond that. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So Christ tells them he has all the authority and the power. He commends them for their patient endurance. He tells them he will preserve them through the trials they will face as Christians. And then he tells them, I'm coming soon. And there are two possibilities when it comes to what Christ is saying here. First, he could be telling the church in Philadelphia that he's coming soon, as in his return, his second coming is imminent. And in that case, it would be that he's encouraging them by reminding them of their sure end as believers, of what the ultimate outcome of all this is going to be, regardless of the trials. The second possibility is that he's referring to his presence as in his preserving power that he promised to them in the last verse, that soon they will see his power and their protection through the trials they will face. I don't like that one. I favor the first of these options because the word here for soon is used a lot in the book of Revelation, and it's almost exclusively used to refer to Christ's second coming. Like in Revelation 22 where he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So then what does Christ mean in saying that he's coming soon to these Christians who died 1,900 years ago and he still hasn't come? Well, it's an encouragement like the one we saw last week. Like when Christ encourages his church to stay awake so that he will not overtake them like a thief in judgment. And we won't rehash all of that. But if you remember, Christ told the church in Sardis to stay awake or he would come like a thief and they would not know at what hour he will come. So here when he says, I am coming soon, Christ is telling the Christians in Philadelphia that his return is imminent, so they will stay awake. There's more here, because this word for soon is not the same word for soon that we looked way back in the beginning of the study, where we saw this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. As we saw here, this soon means near, means close in calendar time. The word here is a different word, and it can be translated as quickly or a bunch of other ways, and it's done that way in Matthew 5, where Christ tells us, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Same word we see in the parable of the prodigal son, where he returns, and the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Or when Mary hears that Jesus is coming to them after her brother Lazarus died, and we read that when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. When the word is used this way, the word has somewhat of a temporal meaning, but it also describes the order or the urgency of events. As in, this is the next thing to be done, or this is the most important thing to be done. That's why Christ tells us, come to terms with your accuser quickly, first, before you go to the judge. That's why the Father tells his servants, bring the robes Quickly, immediately, the next thing you do, this is important, bring the robes. And while the word is translated in some ancient documents as, as soon as you can, I, I don't think that's necessary to get the thrust of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the very next thing that he will do personally is return. There is nothing else to be accomplished by him directly. It's imminent, as in it can literally come at any moment. 
He's telling them, rely on me and my power. Be faithful. Through you, the gospel will be spread. I will keep you from giving the temptation to sin. And remember, I'm coming back. And I'm coming back any time now. And he can come back any time now. So he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So he says, I'm coming. I'm coming back. Your end is sure. I'm coming. He said, next thing I'm going to do, hold fast to what you have. And we've seen this encouragement to two other churches already. Christ encouraged the church in Pergamum to hold fast to his name, which we saw as holding fast to him in the face of persecution by the devil. Christ encouraged the church in Thyatira. At least those, as he said, did not learn the deep things of Satan. Hold fast what they have until he comes. And we saw what they have is him. That's what he's saying here with the, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. He tells the church, hold fast. Stay obedient. Cling to me. And he says to do that so that no one may seize their crown. And this crown here brings us back to what we just discussed about verse 10. Because there's a reference back to the encouragement in Smyrna where we read, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you in the prison that you may be tested for ten days of tribulation. But look what he says. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And if you remember, that crown of life is a metaphor for eternity in the presence of Christ. And it is tied in with the perseverance under trial, as we just saw in this verse from James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So here... He's saying the same thing as James says. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, the trials that dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And this isn't to say that true believers can lose their crown, that they can lose their eternal life. As we've seen, it's the same type of thing as saying to the church in Sardis that he wouldn't blot their names out of the book of life. This is something that cannot happen. Those whose names are in the book of life are destined for the crown of life, and they will endure to the end. With the patient endurance that is really the preservation, as we saw, of Christ, who, as he says here, has all the power and will use it to protect us through the trials. Which is why Christ then tells them, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Christ says a lot here, but he's really just emphasizing the same thing. First, says to the one who conquers, which we've seen in every address. This presents the promise as conditional, but it's really pointing to Christ's victory and Christ's preservation of his church. To the one who conquers, who is preserved by Christ, which is every true believer, Christ will make that person a pillar in the temple. And the temple, of course, the true temple, the Bible tells us, is Christ. And we are told as the church, we are the dwelling place of Christ. We are the temple of Christ. So what he's saying is, he who he sets as a pillar is those people who he brings into the church, who he saves. And he says, once they are in the church, they'll never go out of a temple. See, this is pointing to the impossibility of the loss of salvation for a true believer. Because again, the authority, remember, over judgment and salvation is Christ's. As we've seen, the conquering and persevering faith we are called to doesn't mean that our salvation is contingent upon our perseverance. Rather, our perseverance is contingent upon our salvation. And that's what Christ is saying here. Once we are part of the temple of the true invisible church, we will never leave the church because we can't. And more than that, Christ says he will write on such people the name of his God. And of course, when Christ refers to God, he's talking about God the Father. This is marking, or in New Testament terms, sealing us with the name of God. This is the assurance of our salvation he's talking about here. As we'll see, this idea of having God's name written on the elect is brought out again later in the book, a few times. Like in Revelation 14, 
where we read, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his, his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. As you saw briefly in the introduction, when we get there, we'll talk about it in more depth. The 144,000 represents the elect of all ages. We have the Father's name written on us and the Lamb's name written on us. Again, verse 12. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him in the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So we'll have the name of God written on us. And he says the name of a city of God, which as we saw, is the new Jerusalem that comes uh, from God out of heaven, which is the glorified church. So the new Jerusalem is the church in glory with God our Father forever and ever. This is the promise of that life that we will have in eternity, which we've already begun to have as those saved by God and sealed for that day. And like we see with the address to Pergamum, Christ promises a new name. If you remember, we saw this, the promise of a church to Pergamum. He said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, which was always Christ, and will give him a white stone, which is always justification, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And when we consider this, we saw, when Christ gives you a new name, it's an indication that you are his. It is an indication of both his authority over you and his intimate knowledge of who you are because he chose you. Like when God renamed Abram and Sarah and Jacob, or when Jesus renamed Peter, Levi, and the sons of Zebedee. It is an indication that we belong to Christ. So in other words, Christ is here in this verse saying pretty much the same thing six different ways. So the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall go out of it, and I will run on him in the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down for my God out of heaven in my own new name. He says, he will preserve us, because we are part of a church, that we can never not be part of a church. He has sealed us for our final salvation, that we will be among the glorified church, and that we have been claimed by Christ as his very own. And all we are called to in the meantime, until all of this comes to its culmination in his return, is to obey him and hold fast to him. And as always, we have the statement, that this is for the churches and Christians of all time, when he says, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've seen this in all of them. This is going out to all Christians everywhere. Christ will preserve us because we are who we are because he has the power. He has the authority over life, over salvation, and he has sealed us for that final day of salvation. We will be glorified because we belong to him. Amen?